0: Uh, now, you've heard uh, all of the criticisms of the Christian faith that focus on the bad behaviour of Christians. I'm sure you've heard this, whether it's uh, from media or from even talking to friends or maybe uh, you, uh, you wonder about some of them yourself. Uh, people level all sorts of cri- criticisms against the Christian faith based on the behaviour of Christians. So, for example, there's hypocritical church leaders who fleece the flock, Uh, There's uh, the appalling case after case of child abuse. There's historical events like the Crusades or the Inquisition that people love to bring up. And then, of course, people's own personal experiences like uh, an overbearing father who cherry-picked the Bible passages to build his stronghold of control in the home. Or maybe a judgmental aunt who cherry-picked Bible passages to build up her own ego by picking holes in the shortcomings of others. Uh, I'm currently reading a book called Bullies and Saints. It's written by an Australian author, John Dixon, about just this phenomenon. Uh, it's a historical showcase of the best and the worst uh, con- contributions that Christians have made in Christ's name. Uh, he's a Christian author. Uh, his conclusion is this, to quote the book, Uh, It's on the screen. Jesus wrote a beautiful tune. Christians have not performed it consistently well. Sometimes they've been badly out of tune. Occasionally they've played something entirely different. And when people turn to contemplate the original, Christ makes Christians look bad. The behaviour of Christians can't disprove the existence or goodness of God. In fact, sometimes, uh, often, the behaviour of Christians suggests just the opposite: the existence and goodness of God. But what if you could show? What if you could show that God's tune, like John Dixon says, is not so good after all? What if a full reading of the Bible was to reveal that God isn't as loving and forgiving as guys like John or other people might make us believe? That God's not inclusive or whatever other measure we would like to hold against him. If you could be shown that God has a bad side based on his own behaviour, not just the behaviour of his people but his own behaviour, then you might have to question some things. Uh, Is it only Christians that give Christianity a bad rap or does God himself have something to do with it? And the famous story of Noah is probably up there as number one in terms of horrifying acts meted out by God, the Creator. Uh, You know, I said before, if you get in a debate, someone will love to bring up the Crusades or the Inquisitions or holy wars, uh, devastating things that have been brought, brought about by God's name, but people will just as quickly bring up Noah's flood Uh, and other events that you can read about in the Bible. Uh, Many children's Bibles telling the story of Noah, uh, well, I can't decide whether they're funny or disturbing. Uh, In the way, uh, the children's stories, they all love the story of Noah's Ark, but man, it's horrific. And And these picture books, they zero in on the cuteness of pairs of zebras and bunny rabbits, bounding into the Ark, and completely cover over the utter... Destruction of every other living thing. Man, woman, child and animal. Is there any way to justify it? Is there any way to make sense of a God who claims to be good and who asks us to trust him, but who is capable of this kind of massacre? Here's a few points that we're going to raise uh, in discussion of Genesis 6 to 9. Uh, first off, judgment as justice, uh, judged justice and mercy, and God's salvation plan. We're covering four chapters, like I said. I'm going to give you a quick rundown and then we're going to uh, look at these three points together. So a quick rundown of chapters 6, 7, 8 and 9. Chapter 6 we just read together. Uh, humanity has become hopelessly violent and corrupt. God expresses regret for having made them in the first place. He decides to send a worldwide flood to wash the place clean and start all over. He chooses just one righteous man, Noah, uh, and his family to hit reset on the human race. That's chapter 6. Chapter 7, God sends the flood. Uh, Noah uh, goes on the ark Uh, and the animals as well, and then all hell breaks loose. In verse 11 of chapter 7, it says, The fountains of the deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, And the waters that flooded and destroyed every living thing on the earth were the same waters that lifted Noah and his family to safety in the ark. And they're adrift for 150 days. Uh, then, Chapter Eight: The flood waters slowly subside, and the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, you might be familiar with the story of Noah, uh, who sends out a dove to fly over the earth to test if the waters have completely dried up or not. Uh, three times he does it the first time the dove comes back, which tells Noah uh, that there 's nowhere for the dove to rest. The second time a week later, the dove comes back uh, with a with an olive leaf in its beak, uh, which tells Noah again that the waters are beginning to subside but still the dove found nowhere to rest and then a week later he sends the dove out again and it does not come back uh, which tells him by this time that the waters are dry and it's safe to emerge and they do and he makes a sacrifice to God and then in chapter 9 God establishes a new covenant with Noah uh, in, in some ways, it, it, it really is a reset. He starts again. It even copies the language of Genesis 1 and 2 in the words that God says to Noah. He repeats what he said to Adam and Eve, encouraging Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, he repeats the open invitation to eat all food that he has given to them. This time, he even extends it to the animals, which they may eat for meat, which is a thing that seems to have been left out of the first five chapters. Uh, And God also commits to never again destroy the earth by flood Uh, and he sets a rainbow in the clouds. That's another highlight of the picture books, by the way. A rainbow in the clouds as a seal of his promise. But that's not all. There's an episode uh, in chapter 9 of Genesis which also doesn't make the kids' picture books. Noah plants a vineyard. He ferments some wine. And then he gets catatonic drunk he writes himself off he passes out naked in his tent and then one of his three sons ham uh, walks in and sees his father naked and brings his brothers in presumably to mock their father Uh, but his brothers uh, the older and younger sham and japheth they walk into the tent backwards so that they don't see their father naked they're carrying a garment over one shoulder so they can place it over their father Noah and cover his shame, and when Noah wakes up, he blesses his two discreet sons and curses Ham. I don't know if you knew that story. We're going to look at that uh, at the end of today as well. But let's come back to uh, these three points: justice as mercy, uh, sorry, judgment as justice, justice and mercy, and God's salvation plan. Uh, This first section goes part way towards answering the question that I raised at the very start. How can God be good and engage in worldwide slaughter? Well, the first thing is this God made the world, right? He made it. Does He owe us anything? Can't He do what He likes with what He made? Now, frankly, this might leave you all a little bit cold, and this isn't where I'm going to end the point, right? But frankly, from a stance of pure reason and only reason, this is a pretty satisfying justification for God to do whatever He wants. Uh, twice in the Psalms, and we opened with one of these verses this morning, it says, The Lord does what He pleases. Yeah, and, and why shouldn't He? Isn't that His right? He does as he pleases. He made it. He can do what he likes. And I would say this, like in some respect, maybe this rationale leaves you a bit cold. And like I said, there's more to it. But, but in some sense, there is no greater peace and freedom than in just simply giving yourself up to that one simple truth, that you live in the Lord's earth and you are at his mercy and that is not such a terrible place to be. The world is his God can do with it what he likes. I am his. God can do with me what he likes. Now look, that might be rationally satisfying, but if God isn't good, then it's also pretty terrifying, isn't it? God is all-powerful. He's got all the rights in the world to do whatever on earth he likes. But if he's just loose and unpredictable and chaotic... And wicked, well, that's, there's not much safety in that. One of the things we have learned about God, though, already in Genesis, is that He has made a commitment to love and cherish the people uh, that He made. He, there's nothing binding Him to this commitment except that this is His nature, it's His will. When He made the world and everything in it, He made everything out of the same stuff, but inside man, He blew His own breath. And he deliberately paused over the creation of man and woman to, in both of them, imprint his own likeness and image. And then he he doesn't do this to the animals but to the people. He talks and engages with them and even walks with them and he blesses them and sets expectations and limits for them and he gives them a mission. All of this teaches us that God can and will do what he pleases... But that apparently the thing that God that pleases God is to be in relationship with us. That is his will that he chose to impose on himself. We can't demand a thing from him, but he has condescended uh, to attach himself to us, his fortunes to ours. And apparently that's more for our benefit than for us. Uh, it's an overflow of his nature since he existed, he existed quite nicely without us in the first place. He doesn't need us. But then when the relationship breaks down, everybody hurts. Everybody. And what we must understand from Genesis 6 is that the flood is God's justice. This is uh, point number one. This is God's justice. Things have got that bad that not only is it God's right, to wipe everything out he is completely justified in doing so it couldn't be stressed enough in chapter 6 verses 5 and 7 the lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually can you get any clearer the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. In verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. It's hard to see how it could be laid on any thicker than this. People aren't just mean, they're violent. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil All the time. Now is this a summary of a uniquely dark day in man's history back in the times of Noah or is it a summary of the general affliction of mankind that we are only evil continually to the core of our being? Well the Bible doesn't exactly say. I think it's possible that the days of Noah are particularly uh, and unusually dark days but then again we're from the same family We're cut from the same cloth. We're all made of the same stuff. And maybe the only thing holding back God from another deluge is the fact that he promises in chapter 9 that he won't, that he will hold back. But regardless of whether it's quite accurate to say of everyone who exists today that we are only evil continually, there is this in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The reality is that now, just as then, we all deserve nothing more than God's wrath. It is only his love and patience that holds back his hand It's also useful to be reminded that of these three words up here, judgment as justice. Uh, to think of judgment in terms of justice. It is justice. See the word judgment seems to have gotten all loaded up with negative connotations. As if judgment is always cruel. Judgment is the opposite of love. It is nasty, it has no place. Uh, but without judgment there is no justice. And isn't justice good? Justice is good. Now justice must be fair and it must be just, it's in the name. Uh, But as uncomfortable as it might be for sinners like us to look it in the face, judgment is necessary for order and goodness to prevail. Otherwise all the indications are that pride and cruelty will rule, that uh, might will become right. And that punishment will follow the weak instead of punishment coming to the wicked. It's good that God exercises judgment as one tool of his justice. It's also good that alongside judgment, God exercises mercy. Justice and mercy. Now we get the impression that for God to save Noah was no act of mercy. Noah was good. Uh, in fact, for God to save Noah was merely an extension of his justice uh, because Noah didn't deserve wrath. Noah, I, I don't believe for a moment Noah can have been perfect. In fact, we'll, we'll revisit that soon. But Noah did well enough to get this assessment from God. While everyone else was only evil continually, Noah, in chapter 6 verse 9, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now in saying that Noah walked with God, that's a call back to the garden where God did walk with Adam and Eve. It's also a call back to chapter 5, which we didn't read together as a church. In a list of Adam's descendants, uh, in chapter 5, you could look at it in your own Bible, each time it ends by saying of Adam's descendant and he died and his next one and he died and the one after that he died, with one exception. I wonder if you've ever heard of Enoch. In chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Right where you expected to say, and he died, it says he just, he was no more, God took him away. Now look, Enoch is shrouded in mystery, he's barely mentioned again, uh, but he is the first indication uh, in your Bible from, you know, if you start at page one, he's the first indication that there, there is a realm beyond the earth where God's people might live with him, where death might not exist. And on that same basis, God spares Noah, because Enoch walked with God and Noah walks with God. a One righteous man who will be the salvation of many. I wonder if you've ever heard that storyline before. We'll come back to that as well. But that is where God's mercy is. Uh, lies, that he uses one just and righteous man to save many who prove themselves unworthy, who deserve nothing but judgment. Notice that Noah is one of eight who go on the ark and no such congratulations are given to his wife or his sons or their wives. In fact, if we go right back to the purely logical argument earlier, perhaps the only sensible thing for God to do would have been to destroy... uh, all the earth, except Noah, and just done with Noah what, what he did with Enoch. Take, take Noah away, that's justice, he's, he's saved, and destroy everyone else. That's justice, they deserve it. And he could wipe his hands of the whole mess, and it's all over. But even in that most profound and sweeping act of judgment, uh, we see God's mercy and love, not only for humanity, uh, but also for the animals with which he'd made no such covenant, Uh, but especially through Noah uh, to begin uh, or to continue his plan for salvation, which is our last point, to look at God's salvation plan. Now, look, I want to say this. Uh, I maintain these events are historical. Uh, They weren't written down, but they weren't written down merely for historical study. They're written down to teach us a thing or two about the way things are. They were written down uh, with a clear theological agenda, uh, to foreshadow God's ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. Uh, you might remember this verse that I raised in our very first talk in Genesis chapter 1. This is a good verse or at least a concept to have locked away in your mind. This is, um, this is of Jesus in Luke chapter 24. Jesus, uh, after he's risen from the dead, he's talking to a couple of his disciples on the road and it says, beginning with Moses, now Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus is in, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now we have to expect that uh, in the books of Moses and in all the books that follow, there are arrows pointing us to Jesus or things left open-ended that only get concluded or make sense in Jesus. And so as we read Genesis chapters 6 to 9, we have to read them on their own merits, as they were intended by Moses who wrote them to the audience who first read them. Um, but if we are to fully understand Genesis 6 to 9, at, at least in, uh, then we need to uh, understand it at least in some sense as setting us up to expect the coming of Christ and God's salvation through him. And there's a bunch of things, uh, but I'm going to pull out just a couple of points, uh, a couple of sort of trajectories that Genesis 6 to 9 set us on. I've already alluded to this one. We have one righteous man in the pages. There's Noah, blameless, walks with God. God doesn't need much to work with in order to do his will. Just one. And in the days of Noah, he was the only one later in Genesis, we'll come to uh, Abraham, uh, a childless man and his wife, who God promises would have many children, and through whom, uh, and through who, and through whose family, He would bless uh, all the nations of the earth. And many other times, we see uh, God's people are threatened with extinction, either at the hands of enemies or thanks to their own sinful self-destruction. But God would send. Uh, just one or two righteous people to stand in the breach and things would come back on course. And then ultimately, God would send one righteous man in Jesus, absolutely flawless, like fully righteous, because all the others, there's, you know, the, they've got blips in their record. But one truly righteous man who would be sufficient to cover the sins of all the people. Just one righteous man. The offspring of the woman. If you've been with us since Genesis chapter 3, you may already uh, be cluing on to what I'm speaking about here. You might remember this from chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve uh, eat the forbidden fruit, God curses the serpent and he says this. It's on the screen. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In this moment of cursing... God is setting up uh, an expectation and, tra- and a trajectory to be looking out for who, which one of this woman's children are going to be the salvation, which one of them is going to be the one who will look the serpent in the eye and destroy him, even if it means being struck in the process. This is the question you have to keep in mind when you read the whole of the Old Testament. It's a really helpful thing to just have stored in the back of your mind when you're reading about each person who most of the characters in your old testament will follow from this line and wonder is this the one is this the one is this the one who is the woman's son who will crush the serpent and look the the woman's first son is a murderer her second son is murdered her third son well we don't actually hear much about him Seth leads a pretty unremarkable life he bears children and then he dies And then his son does the same and dies and his son does the same and dies and on and on. And then in the days of Noah, everyone is corrupt except one. So there is one ray of hope that comes out of the Noah story that the line of Eve's offspring is preserved and hope yet remains for humanity. He didn't just wipe them clean and start again with a brand new Adam and Eve. He could have done that. But he had made a promise way back in chapter 3 and he will keep that promise. And yet in Noah, we're still left wanting. He, so far, he's the offspring. Where we're up to, he's the offspring. This is where our hope lies. Is it going to be Noah? He seems pretty good so far. And then he steps off the ark and this is what he does. It's pretty small. You can follow in your Bible, Genesis chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, the other sons, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Why is that there? If you're a 10 or a 12 or a 15-year-old reading that story for the first time, it's there just to make you smile. Uh, It's curious, isn't it? It's unexpected. But look, I've underlined a couple of key phrases to show uh, that Moses, in writing this, he has deliberately composed this story in a very particular way to highlight just how devastating this single act of drunkenness is. Now, you might think a single night on the Terps is just one mistake, but in, in this instance, it is laden with theological significance. It is heavy. Drank of the wine. Just like Adam's downfall came about from consuming the forbidden fruit, Noah also becomes a powerless victim of a deceitful fruit. Now let's not make too much of it, right? Maybe I'm getting too excited here. You know, Adam's fruit was on a tree and Noah's is from a vine. Adam's fruit was eaten fresh. Noah's was carefully and deliberately prepared. Adam's fruit was expressly forbidden. And there is no such express prohibition of alcohol in the Bible. But look what happens next. It feels like there's a theme developing. Look what happens next. Noah lay uncovered, exposing his nakedness. Well, that brings us back to Genesis 1-3 to as well, because whereas in the garden Adam and Eve's nakedness began as a proof of their innocence, when they consumed the fruit, it says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were instantly ashamed. So Noah's nakedness here is the outcome of having taken the fruit of the vine and his nakedness is absolutely a symbol of his shame. And then it says, two of Noah's sons cover him with a garment. Does that sound familiar as well from Genesis chapter 3? When Adam and Eve became ashamed of their exposure, God didn't wipe their memories and restore them to their prior state. He also didn't leave them naked and ashamed. He offers them a band-aid for their shame in the form of a garment. And now with Noah, the only thing between him and his shame is the same band-aid graciously given now well these connections i'm convinced are i don't think i'm making this up right i don't think i'm making too much of it but but why are they there it's for this reason in this storyline of the offspring of eve when we come to noah we are still left wanting we are left realizing that in noah there is no improvement the flood has done one thing, it's gotten rid of, uh, like, by numbers, a lot of wicked people. But wickedness and laziness uh, and sinfulness is still there, even in the good guy. We can see clearly that humanity's course continues to veer further from God and that nothing will help short of a radical transformation of man's corrupt hearts and our Saviour... Is still to come. The offspring of the woman is still to come. Washed by water. This is the last point that I want to make uh, out of Genesis six to nine. Why did God flood the earth? Uh, why not a plague uh, or a meteor or just a click of the fingers? He could have done that. Just a word. Why not? Did he flood the Earth just simply because he did, and that's the way it was, and nothing else comes from that. It doesn't have to have a meaning right. But I, I think the symbolism of water is clear. This is a cleansing. That's what water's for. When God tells Noah his plan in chapter seven verse four, he says, "I oh, will blot out every living thing." Well blotting something out. It's like covering it up or wiping it clean." In God's ceremonial law going forward from this point, uh, the the law that Moses writes down later in Leviticus, there are numerous instructions to wash yourself with water ceremonially, to to move on from a state of uncleanness, whatever it is that might have brought that about, to cleanness. Becoming uh, acceptable to God is a process of being washed again and again. In an extension of this theme, of ceremonial washing, John the Baptist comes right before Jesus and he comes baptising. And the clear emphasis of baptism isn't the word immersion or going under, like many people will tell you. The emphasis of the word is clearly cleansing. It's a, it's a bath like a wash. It's a symbol of leaving behind an old life and becoming a new person. Now, water can be productive and it can be destructive if you've lived through a flood if you've been here long enough you would have done so then you can see that just the rank devastation that a flood can bring but you also know that after a cool shower on a hot day you feel like just a brand new person made whole and clean When John came before Jesus, he was demanding that in preparation for the Messiah, in preparation for the coming kingdom, that you must be washed clean. And he was using a symbol of water to do so, but he was also demanding repentance, a starting over, a fresh start of leaving beside or behind you one life and setting forth uh, with a new life. One other thing we see in this symbolism of water is that like a thing that can both be destructive and productive, um, Jesus seemed to escape the consequences of water. All of the Gospels of Jesus will tell uh, the same story of a time where on a, in a storm, with fishermen afraid on a boat, Jesus walked on the water. He didn't succumb to the waves or the storm or the flood, so to speak. Jesus is our ark. He is the one that we must attach ourselves to. Salvation comes only through him. The last song that we're going to sing today uh, is called Nothing But The Blood Of Jesus. It starts with this line, a single question, what can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? And I'll tell you what won't do it, a bath. I'll tell you what, a worldwide flood won't even do it. It is not enough to cleanse the earth. And that's kind of the point even by the time you get to the end of the flood story itself. itself. The point is that there must be a solution, a full solution still to come. And the song uh, that we're going to sing answers that question, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the one righteous man uh, who stands uh, as our salvation, who died on our behalf, who proves that God is the consequences of sin are death is death God is justified perfectly in destroying and taking lives for those who sin against him but Jesus took that consequence and punishment himself so that you can be forgiven Now, the lesson from Genesis chapter 6 to 9 can't be this. Well, if everyone's wicked all the time, it can't be, well, then you you therefore must just try a bit harder, try to be less wicked, try to be a bit more like Noah. Noah's not so hot in the end, is he? He's good at the start, but he, he peters out. The message needs to be to cling to Jesus and him alone. Let's pray. Father, as we examine our own hearts, uh, we can see uh, the truth of the statement that uh, there is always evil continually there. The deeper we look, the more likely we are to find it. That even in our best moments, our greatest acts of kindness, it's not hard to find uh, little elements of pride uh, or, or selfishness in all those things. Father, we know that uh, there is not all that much really that separates us uh, from the people who lived before the flood. Uh, We may not be as evil or as violent as they, but we are still guilty of sin before you and our hearts are in desperate need of cleansing. Father, we are sorry for our sin. We throw ourselves on your mercy. We praise you because you are just and fair and somehow in your justice you're better than fair, you're merciful and gracious and you spare some. Please forgive us our sins. Please help us uh, to cling to Jesus. Amen.